For this episode of Speaking of Suicide, I'm talking to Steve Phillip. I saw Steve's story on LinkedIn and like thousands of others around the world, I was knocked sideways by it. Raw, open and so very sad, it is a story of a father writing about losing his son to suicide. But something in the way Steve writes, along with the fact that it was written so soon after losing his son Jordan, was particularly poignant and powerful. Now, speaking of suicide, is meant to be open and honest. That's the whole point of it. But that doesn't always make for an easy listen. So remember, you can always press pause. And don't forget, there is support available from lots of avenues, including Mikey's line. I'll give their details out after we've heard from Steve. Steve, thank you very much for joining me. Hello, Penny. Good to, good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I know Jordan's death obviously changed absolutely everything um, for you. But before we we talk a bit about Jordan and what happened. Can we go back to before you lost him and your life then? What what was your life like? What was it full of? What was life, family, work, you know? Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, very different, uh, as you as you can imagine, uh, Penny, that you know, for, for 20 odd, 30 years, kind of lost track. I, I worked in the world of uh, um, senior management and in the automotive industry, got involved in consultancy. And that led to me ultimately taking a director's role within a leadership and management training company and then and then creating my own consultancy and training firm. Uh, in uh, really the about, about 2009 and for the last 11 years um, yeah I traveled the country worked overseas um, with clients from FedEx to Harley-Davidson to Toyota the British Red Cross all kinds of companies um, uh, working uh, and helping them really to demystify how they use social media um, clearly I'm not a millennial uh, people will see that from my online profile but I uh, very quickly recognize the power of online communications in, in order to communicate individual brands professionally. Uh, and you know, that was my background, that was my life. Um, married uh, for the second uh, time, Jordan's uh, stepmom, um, my wife, Laurence, who's, who's French, um, uh, divorced from Jordan's mum after 23 years, but we maintain a very good relationship and, um, and yeah, you know, we, we had um, a pretty, to a large extent, normal existence, going through the trials and tribulations that people do in life, but in all other respects, doing okay. Except we had um, a lad, Jordan, who was clearly struggling in life. Um, He was diagnosed with anxiety and clinical depression back in 2015, and that would manifest itself in terms of episodes. They would come along every so often, and his his route beyond the very first episode was to go back to the doctors, go back to the GP, um, get some uh, medication, antidepressants, uh, go back to his job, go back to his life, and to all intents and purposes, in the main, during those four or five years that we were aware of his uh, mental health issues, um, he continued to function with a lovely girlfriend, his own house, car, and a and a very good job that he had. Yeah, I was going to ask. What well, I mean, we're we're not defined by by our mental health. So, what was Jordan like outside of of those challenges? What kind of a guy was he? Yeah, well, he was. Uh, you know, and I've have heard this so many times, Benny, from other families now that he was a good looking young lad. I say thir- thirty four, certainly um, 
tall, uh, yeah, really handsome lad, uh, a loving lad, very good natured, um, certainly not a real mean streak in his body. In fact, many people have said, you know, subsequent to his passing, many of his friends, you know, Jordan was the guy who was the first one there to be on hand if they were struggling. He'd jump in his car and whether it was down the other end of the country or wherever it would be, he, he would he would be there. Uh, he was the guy if they went out with a few buddies on a drinking night in a town centre, Newcastle would be one of his favourite haunts, was the guy that they'd look back over the shoulder to see where he'd gone and he'd be chatting to a homeless guy. Um, you know, he was he was just that that sort of person. And I'm kind of creating this very perfect picture, but I have to say that I learned far more about Jordan from his friends after his death than I actually knew of him as a father and, and got to say, you know, immensely proud and kind of blown away by the very genuine stories that I heard, you know, about my son. Were you close? Yeah, we were, we were very close. It was, Jordan was a difficult lad to kind of get to see on a regular basis. Now it's odd because he lived just 20 minutes away from me. I'm in Harrogate, North Yorkshire. He was in Leeds. Um, but getting together was a real challenge. Um, you know, his mum, who's some 80 miles away in the northwest, and his sister, um, you know, would always say the same. It's, gosh, it's hard work getting together with Jordan, isn't it? it was inviting for a barbecue or an event. Um, but as we got to understand more about his challenges with mental health, we kind of, I think, started to recognise that this was more about a degree of self-protection for him. He He openly told us on a number of occasions how he how he never looked forward to any event whether that be a, a trip abroad with his mates or, or whatever but we were still very close um you know we we would go out and you know have a beer or go to a concert and you know my last two memories which were two years ago you know this month and, and next month were of Jordan and I going out to watch one of our favorite bands together in Leeds and and then going out for a whiskey tasting evening on November the, the 19th, you know, the last time that I saw him. And, you know, so, yeah, we, we, were, we were close. It sounds like he'd, he talked to some extent about the struggles he was, he was having in life and that they'd been going on for a while. But did you have any inkling that suicide was, was even a possibility with him? Um, I'm going to say no, and speaking on on, on my part, um, to kind of understand the dynamics of the family as well a little bit, um, uh, Jordan's uh, mum and my ex-wife had been um, a senior psychiatric nurse for the last 20 plus years, um, and, and she was probably regularly kind of voicing her concerns to which my response was to get on the phone and have a chat with Jordan and come back and say, well, he seems absolutely fine. You know, I've just had a chat with him. And, and you know, we both kind of look back at those times uh, now as well. And and, and even Jordan's um, partner, you know, she was just about to, to qualify, put a dissertation in to become a clinical psychologist. And although they weren't living together, she was regularly staying there. So we have people that, that certainly in the latter part of 2019 understood he was struggling more than ever before. Uh, but I don't think anyone for one moment ever thought that he would take his own life. That, that wh Whether his mum had an inkling because of her background and experience and having worked with other young people who, you know, have taken their own lives, um, possibly. Um, 
but yeah, it, it was that complete and utter disbelief and shock when it when it happened. You have written about what happened and you've talked about it a lot, but um, your story won't be familiar to everybody. So I wonder if you can just share with us a, a bit of what happened or, or how you found out that Jordan had taken his life. Yeah, I mean, going back to my work as a consultant and social media, that's exactly what I was doing on, on December the 4th. I'd driven down from Newcastle the night before to the to the West Midlands and uh, checked into the hotel. And um, that previous night exchanged um, a WhatsApp conversation with Jordan. In fact, we were going to have a conversation and speak on the phone when I got to the hotel. I was a little later arriving. Um, so I messaged him and said, look, Jordan, I'm just going to go down for a bite to eat and, and then shall we have a chat and um we just exchanged a few a few messages and i know in that article you're referring to penny that i share a screenshot of the the last couple of messages between us and uh, <laughs> um you know he just he just said look yeah obviously you've had a busy day dad um i've been feeling pretty tired didn't sleep well didn't get to bed till two last night uh, I'm probably just going to chill this evening is, you know, if it's okay, um, you know, we'll catch up later or another time. And, uh, and that of course was the last exchange that I had with him. How, how did you hear what had happened? Well, uh, the following day I, I went to the client, a, a large, um, international motors group in, in the West Midlands and had a, had a great day, delivered a, you know, a, a great workshop with a great team of people. I came out feeling pretty buoyant. Knew I had a three and a half hour journey back north ahead of me. Um, it was um, a, a little after 20 past four when I got into my car and I put the mobile phone onto the holder on the dashboard. And, and literally, as I put it there, an incoming call came in from Jordan's partner, Jordan's girlfriend, Charlotte. Um, uh, not maybe completely unusual, but she wasn't someone who would phone me on a regular basis. Um, so of course I picked it up um, in reasonably good spirits, and and then you know in the next few seconds really, um, yeah everything kind of collapsed really. Um, she was hugely distressed, and you know I just remember the first, you know I did subsequently check the log for that call, which was at two minutes, but as I mentioned in the article, I think I remember about fifteen seconds where all I heard was was Charlotte saying, "I'm sorry, I'm so sorry." It's Jordan. Um, He's killed himself, and and that was how I found out. And um, just your world, just well, it's hard to describe what happens at that moment because you can't, you can't. I say you, I, I just couldn't take in the enormity of what had happened. It was, and it still is to this day. You know, we talk about it's still surreal. I was talking with one of Jordan's friends yesterday who'd been to visit his grave recently. And, and he, and I said, it's just surreal, isn't it? It's, it's like this hasn't happened. He said, well, that's exactly what I said to Jordan at the grave, that this can't have happened. And I think you, you know, I don't know how long that feeling lasts for, but that is still a part of me that doesn't quite accept the fact that it's, it, it's happened, even though logically we know it has. So did you, I mean, I, I can't imagine what was going through your head as you continued driving. Did you continue driving? Well, I, yeah, my, my first job, of course, was, um, you know, to get on the phone and, and phone my wife, Jordan's stepmom, first of all, then 
phone Jordan's mum, then phone his sister. Um, in between, and I can't tell you in what order, I was back to Charlotte to see how she was doing. Paramedics were obviously there, police and everybody. Um, and then phoned my, my mum, Jordan's grand mum, you know, it was 80, 82 at the time. Um, and, um, and then I just got out of the car and, and I just walked back into the client's building, this massive building. I saw the receptionist there, big smile on her face, probably a little puzzled why I was back in. And then I think she just clocked my face and thought, well, something's not right here. So, um, <sighs> You know, it's sometimes hard to go to go back to that day and look at that day and kind of almost like a movie at times replay it. But, you know, they, they were amazing. My contact there came down. They got me into the medical room. They kind of looked after me and, and even offered a driver to, to, you know, take me back home in, in my car. And I assume he or she would get the train back. But my first thought was, how on earth can I have some poor sod sitting next to me for three and a half hours with all that I'm going to have to do in terms of calls? how I might be, how can I put someone through that? And I, I just felt, no, I'll, I'll drive, you know, I was on hands free. I'll, I'll make the calls. I'll receive the calls that I need, need to do. Um, and I do remember that drive back. Um, and, um, two things stood out really from that drive back, you know, obviously lots and lots of phone calls, but, um, um, I do remember getting one call that I assume was from Charlotte as it came in on the screen but she'd handed her phone to the WPC, the police officer who, who was there. Um, so immediately she said, no, it's not Charlotte, it's WPC, whatever her name was. And, you know, I just remember this matter of, almost matter of fact question that she asked me, because there was, there was no, you know, I'm sorry for what's happened. Or she said, yeah, Mr. Phil, I would just need to ask you, do you have a funeral director? And I just went, whoa, <laughs> just... Do we all have a funeral director? I don't know. Is, is, is that something I'm automatically supposed to? You know, it's just, I think the enormity hit when that question was asked. And, and I think the second part was as I approached North Yorkshire and got to the junction of the A1 where you come off at Weatherby towards my home, probably about 15 minutes away from home. And just for a moment, I thought, <laughs> what if I keep driving? What if I just keep going? Because I think I kind of knew what I was going to face when I got home. And, um, you know, no one wants to face that really at all. I had heard you you mention that about the, the WPC in another interview that you did. And it, it made me stop in my tracks. But it it also made me wonder whether none of us are prepared for the for suicide for in either dealing with it or in dealing with other people's pain from being bereaved to suicide maybe I'm being charitable to that WPC but I when I I I was listening to you telling that story when I was out walking and I just kept walking and I sort of thought I wonder I sort of wonder what was going through her head in in that moment and whether she's looked back to that and thought, God, that was just a crass way of dealing with this. I don't know. Yeah, I do, I do know what you mean. And I think, you know, in the last, through the work I'm doing in, in, during the past 22 months or so, that I've, I've been able to get a much better understanding of the first responders' role and police and, 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 and the discrepancies between... Um, 
the different levels of training uh, and support that officers, you know, receive. It can be very different from one police force um, to to another. Um, and clearly, what you know, what I did identify through many conversations with with the police. You know, I, we we partner as the Jordan Legacy with North Yorkshire Police here, and um, you know, th th they, you know, I've heard many stories of officers being you know, sent out to give what they call the death knock on the door and, and completely inadequately prepared for that with little or no training, just, just thrust out into it. And, and, and we know, you know, for each suicide, there's a statistic out there that says that it impacts directly or indirectly on another 135 people. Um, and many of those are first responders. Some of the biggest issues in terms of multiple suicide experiences are of course first responders um and um you know it's we, we had a couple of issues at, at, at the time um because if you know just to explain kind of what happened in the in the days immediately afterwards we you know we became aware from charlotte that as she was sitting in in the police van there as the police were inside there were a couple of uniformed officers on the doorstep um and all Charlotte recalls is seeing them having a laugh and a joke on the doorstep. Now, they could have been laughing and joking about the football. They could have been, you know, it could have been anything. Um, but, you know, this is right in front of someone who's just come across, you know, the body of her partner um, in the hallway of his house. And, and you know, I, I, I met with the police afterwards and uh, with the detective uh, sergeant, you know, leading Jordan's inquiry and, you know, talked about these things. But we also had, you know, you can imagine that once we got home, once we got settled, we said, right, you know, where is Jordan and where have they taken him? Um, it took me, and I documented this, I think it's over four days to find out where he was. And one of the challenges was the only point of contact we had with the police was this WPC who'd left her mobile number with Charlotte. Now, Charlotte shared that with me. I continued to text and phone that number for eight days before I finally got a reply from her as she'd been on annual leave. So I spent a number of days driving around police stations in Yorkshire to try and find out who was in charge of this investigation and where Jordan was. And you think, you know, no family should have to, you know, if, if someone's died in a, in, a, in a car accident or by any other means, family liaison are, are, are there, you know, there's support there if it's a murder or whatever it is. But with suicide somehow, it, it just seems there's, there's no real infrastructure in many cases in place. It was a couple of weeks, I think, after Jordan had died that you uh, wrote about it on that LinkedIn post that we we referred to what what prompted that very public and it was very public because you had a big following um, and have a big following on LinkedIn but what prompted that very public and raw sharing from your end yeah it was it was a couple of things really you know as we were going through all the mess and the shambles and not being able to find out where Jordan was and just the, the, the trauma of everything that we had to go through um um, a good friend of mine said, look, you, you need to be documenting kind of what you're going through. You should be writing this down. He said, one day you might need this. Legally, you might need it for all kinds of reasons, he said. But kind of write down what's going on for you, he said, because also as you grow and you will do, as you start to kind of put your life back together, 
you you'll be able to reflect on just what was going on there and kind of where you are now so so i did start to journal and write these things down and make specific notes of events um really that were going on as far as coroner's office and everything else was concerned um and then you know i thought is is this what people go through when they lose someone to to suicide is, is this kind of normal and what i also thought was because jordan left a suicide note which is a whole different story because it was several weeks later before we actually discovered that he'd left a note for us as a family as well as charlotte we didn't even know that for eight eight weeks um and um in there he he you know one of the lines was you know he said look i'm, I'm sorry because i know what this will do to you and you know if, if i was standing in front of jordan right now i'd be saying I appreciate the sentiment, but you would have no idea. You couldn't possibly comprehend what this has done to everyone who cared about you, friends, work colleagues, those that used to work with you um, years ago, friends. You just, you can't possibly imagine the enormity of, of the ripple effect. Um, and I wanted to write that article for, for people who were considering taking their own lives. It's really interesting. I, I had a meeting with one of the directors, um, branch directors for Samaritans recently, and, and she talked about the article and she talked about a tweet where I challenged actually another mental health organization that was saying that you, you shouldn't say to somebody who's considering taking their own life, you know, just consider what this is going to do to other people because it's kind of heaping more guilt on them. And I, and I, disagreed to a point. I said, it, I think it's all about context. It's all about how that is put across to the individual. But I can tell you from my experience of publishing that article of the number of people that reached out to me afterwards, including those who were considering taking their own lives or had been at the time they read that and had changed their mind as a result. And, and still just recently had a very similar comment. Um, so that's who I wrote it for. And, and I do remember, you know, I, I was used to writing articles and publishing. It was kind of what I did. It's so it's a fairly natural thing for me to do. But when it came to publishing it, I know my finger hovered over that publishing button for what seemed like an eternity. Um, and I did ask myself that question. Why are you doing this? I wanted to be really clear in my own mind why I was sharing it. And once I knew that it was about preventing someone else hopefully through our story from doing the same then i had no qualms and i published it what was behind that hover uh, if you know what i mean what what were you what was the the thing probably a number of that? things penny yeah it, it you know was was this self indulgent what you know just just why you know what what am i doing here you know am i Am I looking for pity? Am I looking for sympathy? You know, all those thoughts were probably going through my head. It's difficult to remember, but kind of knowing me, those would be the thoughts going through my head at the time. But as I say, once I was clear why I was doing it, it wasn't an issue at all. Do you ever go back and reread it? Um, occasionally, and, 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 and oddly, probably more from a research point of view with, with other work that I'm that I'm doing. Um one of my plans that we've been discussing within the Jordan legacy um, for later this year is, is, is to start to write a book. Um, and it's been discussed for quite some time. And <clears throat> fortunately, I have shared, you know, a lot of what we've been through very publicly. And there's, there's a lot of information that's not only in my head, but obviously documented out there that I can refer back to. So, 
Um, but yeah, I think I read it for the first time just to reread it only a few weeks ago. I think um, you know, almost two years on just to because I was still getting comments from people. It's obviously still out there, and I kind of. I wanted to reread it. It might sound a little odd. I almost wanted to read it from someone else's perspective this time, just to try and understand why it was having the effect that it did, and is is doing still. There was something in your. I mean, it was so much about your post jumped out at me. I have a, a big thing about honesty. I think that honesty is a currency. You give out something raw, open, and honest, and I think you get it back from other people. It almost gives other people permission to be honest in return, and so that really. Um, struck me with it but but another thing that that really made me pause Steve was you you do put in the the post some of the the last messages between you and Jordan and then you say I could have done better I could have been less busy I could have insisted we speak or just simply called him I didn't I mean, you you can see there, of course, you know, parental guilt, you know, mounting up. But I I wondered how you have managed to deal with what you called in the article those torments. How have you pushed that around since then? Because as a parent, I don't know how I would. Yeah, it's a great, great question. Um, Push that around is a great term as well I think to to use for this um often people use the term you know have you moved on have you recovered and, and you don't really at all um I, you know I do uh, I think there are a number of things I think you, you you look back at your own life and I look back at mine and recognize how busy I was being busy um with career and everything was focused on that um and and you know I I think if I look inside of myself honestly I'd say at those times that Jordan's mum was concerned that that Jordan was struggling, you know, I I I know what my reaction. My reaction at the time was really, look, you know, he seems fine, and and I could just sense this kind of, okay, look, I'll give him a call and we we'll say, yeah, I've just had a chat. He seems fine, and I look back at all those times now as as me not understanding mental health, not not really understanding what he was going through, and not having made the time to do that either. Um, and I think a lot of people go through life just just almost if I don't go down that path, that it's, it's one less thing I have to deal with kind of in, in, in my life. He seems fine. You know, every, everything looks looks good. Um, so so I think I could definitely have been less busy. But how have I pushed it around since um, I got to a point later on in the first year where I was able to not blame myself for what had happened because I think I did feel that blame and and those words that I wrote in that article clearly suggested that at the time and the reason for that was that I started to learn about more about mental health very quickly very rapidly and suicide and got to um, learn more about Jordan not just from his friends very few of them knew that he was struggling but Jordan had left journals behind Um, uh, not extensive but but enough to tell us that he was considering suicide as long ago as 2015. Um, we were able to find notes from his one and only cognitive behavioural therapy session that he had when he was diagnosed in 2015. We, of course, as a family, were not privy to, to that information at the time. and We assumed it was naturally for 
anxiety and depression only to read these notes and be completely stunned by the fact that he clearly had body dysmorphia uh, and very specific type and and you know so we were sitting there in the loft of his house you know reading this going we had no idea um and, and kind of what that you know as i learned more and more about mental health and all these issues and learned more about what jordan was going through i think a couple of things became really clear to me that that as a family we did the best we could do at that time with the level of knowledge and the tools that we had so it would be wrong to kind of blame ourselves but now i do what i do through the jordan legacy to really try and educate as many people as possible to say we need to talk more as families we need to look at signs that may not be critical but if someone's not doing well we need to have more open conversations we, we need to you know gosh I, I hate to sound like this cliche that we hear on the media all over at the moment uh, that we need to talk more but we do we you know as families as societies we don't do this in workplaces we don't do this anymore everything's about getting through the day you know whether that's work or social life we don't sit and have real meaningful conversations around the dinner table or one-to-one -one or anything like that anymore I think as a result, our society from a very young age is, is suffering. Um, so, yeah, knowing what I know now, I would have behaved very differently. I would have had more open conversations with Jordan. But I am able to push this around by looking back to say at the time I dealt with it with the tools and the knowledge that I had. Out of interest, have you continued to use the writing as a way to continue pushing around all the things that must come with this um, because I, I suspect it will evolve and change and be a process and and has your own storytelling for want of a better phrase been a, a part of you working your way through it I, I think it has Penny I think you know when I you know as you know my my background was in social media and writing and posting and you know I, I did reasonably well in terms of a following at that stage but uh, and and in some ways given what I'm doing now um, I use the word fortunate I was fortunate to have developed a set of skills that allowed me to tell my story perhaps in a way that, that, that others have not been able to um, and, and you know I'm, I've made no apology for the fact that you know when I'm promoting any of the work we do through the Jordan legacy, whether that be an event or, or, or whatever it would be, that I will weave in there, um, you know, some very personal messages and, and the story of what we've gone through, because, you know, what I what I see happening quite a lot is, you know, some wonderful organisations and individuals sharing issues around mental health at the moment, which often lead with statistics um, and statistics don't feel like real people. Um, and subsequently they, they tend not to get the traction and the results they want. And, and I just know that the moment I include any element of, of the personal story in there, um, you know, one that I did just, just last week to, you know, promote a conference that I was at that I think we're somewhere in here, 250,000 views or whatever it is at the moment, maybe beyond that now. But, you know, I had that photograph of Jordan and I on one of our last meals out together um you know i i yeah i continually kind of weave the story and everything into everything that i'm that i'm doing really um 
you write uh, beautifully, if that's not an odd word to, to put alongside writing about suicide, but um, you articulate what you go through extremely well. And um, you're clearly a, a very accomplished communicator. But nonetheless, have you been surprised by just how much traction your posts have gotten, how much reaction they've had, not not just here in the UK, but, but globally, really? Uh, I think in the beginning, particularly, I, I do remember one morning sitting in bed and, and receiving a, a personal email from Ariana Huffington uh, one morning and going, my goodness. Um, and, and, you know, a really lovely message from her and offering her support. And, um, and I think that that surprised me. Um, um, since then, it's I, I've kind of I've got used to it. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed if I don't get traction now. And I'm constantly then at reanalyzing and saying, right, well, what have I got to do to really reach more more people with with this message? So um, and, and I think that leads to some degree, you know, into a question that, that's often asked about how I've managed to kind of do this. Um, you know, I had a, a conversation on LinkedIn yesterday with a gentleman um, who's messaged me um, a number of times uh, in the last few months who's, you know, if my story is a tragic one, uh, you know, let's multiply his three times. Um, um, you know, this is a, a, a chap who... Um, had a stepson um, and and his own son and uh, his stepson lost his best friend um, uh, called Dan in uh, just I think a couple of years ago uh, now within the last two years uh, had a huge impact on his stepson James who subsequently took his own life um, uh, and then um, Levi uh, his other uh, his, his son, who'd been a massive support to the family. He was the one that, who'd helped organise the funerals and the balloon launches and was there for his dad. Ultimately, it all became too much for him. And in December, he took his own life. And, you know, we were exchanging messages last night to the father and I, and he's saying, you know, I don't know how you, how you do this. He said, and, you know, I don't know how I learn from you because we're just kind of struggling and, and I said, you know, I don't know how you get up and out of bed, let alone do what I do. You know, if my story is bad enough, you know, to have been through that three times in effect is just unfathomable uh, to, to me. Um, I just I just can't contemplate that. So in terms of how I've kind of managed it, it's been about putting the work I do into a box, into compartments. It's really how I deal with it. And I, and I have analysed this even more so recently as we're, we're coming towards the second anniversary of Jordan's suicide, that if I didn't literally treat this as a project and a job that I'm doing, I wouldn't be able to do it. Because at the moment, I step back and think about the enormity of what's happened. Like right now, <laughs> you know, it's that's it. I've just gone, I've just lost it. And, um, you know, it. Um, I, I know that in many ways, um, I've probably not taken the time out that I need to for myself, um, something that I will be doing this December. But um, I recognise that you say, I wrote the article within three weeks, the Jordan legacy was founded within about 12 weeks. 
Um, we had all the funerals and all Jordan's affairs to deal with in between and ongoing in that first year. I kind of haven't stopped since then, really. I want us to, to talk a bit more about the Jordan legacy. You've, you've referred to it a few times, but what what did occur to me very much was that not only are you retelling your story, but in retelling your story, you have other people bringing their stories to you. And so you have not only the weight of your own story, but you're carrying the weight of other people's. And I think that's, uh, I think you must have broad shoulders. Let's put it that way. I think yeah, you must think have broad shoulders, Steve. <laughs> I think about 5.30 last night, they weren't feeling quite uh, quite so uh, broad, I have to say. And my wife very kindly went and ran me a very nice big bubble bath, turned some nice music on, lit a candle and said, right, stick yourself in there for a while and get away from that laptop. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're maybe not quite as broad as I think they are on occasions. But out of interest, do you feel a sense of responsibility to these people who bring their stories to you? I mean, are you feeling if you've got a lot of people coming to you i'm just wondering if you feel that it's your job to try and support all of them because it's 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 not but it's not but the answer is yes i know it is and i've been you know i've had this conversation with so many people about you know where do you draw draw the lines and i, I think i've become better in terms of of, of managing that and, and will become better still as the jordan legacy grows i have to because i can't take these on but you know I can remember in the first year particularly the many phone call conversations I were having with people who were you know considering taking their own lives and and the many messages I responded to and and yeah I remember sitting on the sofa with my wife she said you know what are you what are you doing on on there and I said well look read read that I can't I can't ignore that um and you know, but I but I have recognised that I can't save the world. <laughs> I can't, you know, we're not a crisis support organisation. That's why the likes of, you know, great organisations like Samaritans are there. Um, and, you know, I have to accept that. Um, and uh, I, I am getting better at doing that um, as well. But, yeah, I think, you know, certainly there is this, this feeling that if, if someone has approached me personally, uh, which they will do because of how public I am with my story, then I, I can't just ignore it because what if I do? Mm. As I said earlier, I think honesty brings honesty, but that's not always easy. Let's talk about the Jordan legacy because this is obviously a big part of what your life is now. Explain it. Yeah, um, I hope I can anyway. I'm trying to explain it to myself, I think. <laughs> um, it was really interesting because when we, we first put the idea of the Jordan legacy together, it, it was in response to a lot of these messages I was receiving where people suddenly came to me for help. And I went, whoa, hang about. I, you know, I, I don't understand mental health issues or suicide prevention. You know, I'm just kind of on this journey uh, myself. So... You know, I had to go to, to family like Jordan's mum and his girlfriend who, who did have specialist knowledge and say, look, if, if someone comes to me with this issue, where do I signpost them? What, what do I do? You know, I, I really, that's where I was. You know, I often say my knowledge on a scale of one to 10 of mental health was probably a good solid two, if that. Um, so we just put a strategy together to say, right, okay, appreciate you're struggling, but I'm, I'm a grieving father. I'm just kind of communicating my story at the moment. But look, here are some resources. Here's where you can go. 
Um, and I think from there, the idea of could could we create a website? I was offered that support by a local company here in Harrogate um, called Think Methodology. They put the website together, and I think initially it was going to become this this kind of resource site, not a crisis helpline, but stories, resources, signposting, um, and then. As my conversations in the world of mental health and suicide prevention, particularly on LinkedIn, grew, I was introduced to someone who's gone on to become a partner within the Jordan Legacy for the last 12 months with me and very much my right hand man, as I call him, Paul Vittles, who had uh, just returned to his native York from some 15 years with his wife in Australia. Now, Paul had worked uh, extensively in uh, suicide prevention in Australia, even writing some of the, helping the government write some of their policies and procedures around this. But he was also very well connected and engaged with the zero suicide community globally. And we, we, we met up for coffee and, and, and chatted. He'd seen my story. He reached out. Uh, we kind of hit it off immediately. And he started to open my world, if you like, to to the zero suicide communities, this unregistered body of people that felt there was really only one target you could aim for. And that's the simplest one. And that's zero. Even if it's not attainable, it, it's the it's the most sensible target to aim for. And I started to hear about what um, uh, communities in Detroit and Mercy Care in the UK and Australia had done in terms of engaging the communities with ground up strategies, as well as the top down strategies from the government um, and NHS in this country. Um, and recognised that one of the things I wanted to do that would make us a little bit different was to say, if we recognize that we're not psychologists and we're not dealing with the mental health issues per se then what are we dealing with and we recognized one thing and that was that suicide itself is a practical act whatever leads up to it and the complexities of that the actual act of suicide is a practical one so what can you do to prevent the practical act of suicide and that's really where we started the journey with the jordan legacy this year, we've run four or five online conferences around four central themes, which are communities. What can communities do really around suicide prevention? And that's pubs, clubs, schools, chambers of commerce, etc. What can workplaces do around their culture, policies and procedures around suicide prevention? What can the digital community do and what are they doing at the moment through AI and through apps, etc. with uh, human support to prevent suicides? And the fourth area, one that really caught a lot of people by surprise, but got huge engagement with well over 400 people attending that online conference, was the design out suicide. How do you look at all the structures in public places, such as bridges and buildings, and in the future design of those, whether you're an architect, a surveyor, or a construction company, how do you design out the ability for someone to be able to take their lives, whether that's a railway bridge where you clear the foliage leading up to a bridge on a bend or put better lights or whatever it might be. Um, and so our journey, which is still in its very early days, Penny, is around engaging with communities under those four layers and engaging with people who do want to make a practical difference. And that can be an individual, that can be a company. Um, but we're at that stage now where we've kind of got the message out there around these four areas. We've got a great engagement. We've created an online community hub that's just been launched. And as we go into 2022, uh, John Bulbin said, right, how do we start to make some real practical differences around those four layers of our transformational model and strategy that we've developed? 
And if anyone is listening to this and, and is thinking, yes, this is something that, that I want to engage with, um, is, that, uh, uh, is, it, is it open to, to new people getting involved, to ideas and yeah. people from all over? How do they, how do they find you? Yeah, very much. I mean, uh, I think firstly, go to the jordanlegacy.com website and you can contact us there or hello at the jordanlegacy.com and Jordan is a J-O-R-D-A-N um and and contact myself uh, personally there um and you know i do get approached regularly um daily by people who you know have ideas and suggestions and you know even that itself is quite overwhelming at times and, and trying to manage that you know we're not a big organization at all it pretty well is me and paul and and jordan's sister danielle who you know amazingly has come on board to join us at the beginning of september uh, now that's our that's our team right now, and 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 lots of people on the periphery helping and supporting us. Um, so yeah, I mean anyone who says, look, I've I've got something that I think will practically help prevent suicide, uh, prevent suicide in a practical way, then always happy to have that conversation, um, even if it might be a few weeks before I can fit it in the diary. But um, yeah, really really happy to have that conversation. Now you, we started off this by asked what life was like before um, before Jordan uh, took his own life, and you were talking about how busy it was. Um, I don't think it's got any less busy by the sound of things, Steve, has it? <laughs> no, uh, a, little, a little poorer, maybe, Penny. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, no, you're right. I mean, it is it is ridiculously busy. Uh, arguably too too busy really I've, I've made uh, set myself a goal that after uh, a conference that we're running in, on December the 1st the Hope for Life conference which uh, we've got some amazing speakers here in Harrogate coming up from all over the country um, and the second anniversary of course of Jordan's suicide just three days later on December the 4th uh, my diary for December is blocked off um, and that will be maybe to start the book uh, it will be unquestionably to recharge reflect have a little bit of time for me and jordan i think importantly uh, maybe squeezing the odd meeting i feel is valuable to me or a coffee catch-up that's been put off with someone for a long time um but i'm i'm definitely recognize that after two years now it's time for a bit of self-care so um yeah, next few weeks will be pretty lively. Um, but after that, yeah, time to take a step back before we start 2022. I'm, I'm pleased to hear it. Um, can you leave us with one maybe final memory then of, of, of Jordan? What's your favourite image or memory of him? What makes you smile? Oh, yeah, well, it's something, it's a bit of a, a ritual for, for me now that, um, um, and obviously on a podcast you won't see, but, but, uh, and I know my camera's not working today for us, Benny. But um, yeah, behind me in my my office here are a series of photographs in a frame uh, from a holiday that Jordan and I took in 2015, shortly after he'd been diagnosed with depression, and it was for his 30th birthday. And Jordan and I um, booked a week to the Amalfi Coast and. Uh, Hopped on a plane uh, again. Um, his mother spoke to him just a few days before and said, "Are you looking forward to the trip with your dad?" And he said, "I'm not sure I am. I'm, I just, I just don't look forward to to anything." Um, but we went. Um, in his own words, to his mum when he got back, it was one of the best trips he's ever been on. We just had a spectacular time together, and um, 
Yeah, part of my ritual is every morning before I start work, I have a chat to Jordan on those pictures and every night before I go to bed, my wife knows she's got to leave the downstairs, get upstairs and leave me that bit of time just to talk to him and, and those photographs. So that memory of that, that uh, holiday we had together is, um, uh, one, yeah, definitely one of the special memories. Steve, it's been a real privilege um, talking to you and um, I appreciate given how ridiculously busy you are, I really appreciate you giving us the time. Thank you. Thank you, Benny. Been a pleasure. A huge thanks to Steve Phillip for sharing his story. A reminder of Mikey's line, if you or someone you know needs help or advice, you can text 07786 20 55 or contact them via Messenger, web chat or Twitter. Sunday to Thursday, 6pm to 10pm, Friday to Saturday, 7pm to 7am. Now here's Shona McPherson from Mikey's Line with a few thoughts for you to mull over. A couple of things that have struck me from listening to Steve's interview. One is the encounter he had with the, the police officer as he just heard the reality that Jordan had died. And that conversation, this, the bluntness of being asked if he had a funeral director. I think it's a reminder for all of us to think about how we interact with somebody if they've lost somebody to suicide and the importance of us to remain compassionate and to, we don't need special training or to read lots of books about, about understanding suicide, but rather just us remembering the the human face, the need to be compassionate and to put ourselves in that person's shoes. And the other thing that strikes me is Steve's very strong uh, desire to action and the amazing things that he's uh, achieved um, in in honour of uh, Jordan's memory and trying to save lives and there is no right or wrong way for any of us to grieve or to process a suicide. And at the same time, I think it is really important that we, when we feel ready to, make time to look after ourselves and to slow down. So I was also really encouraged to hear that Steve is planning to make time just to slow down in December and to process a bit of what's, what's happened for him. But yeah, really powerful interview and very grateful to Steve for sharing. And please, if this has affected you in any way, seek help. And we're here at Mikey's Line for you if you would like to reach out. As always, a massive thanks to Shona and all the team at Mikey's Line for the work they do. This episode was sponsored by a local building contractor who wished to remain anonymous. The podcast platform is supported by D&D Paving Limited. Please do like, share and comment about the podcast. And if you want to get involved by sponsoring an episode or by telling your story, get in touch with Mikey's Line. Speaking of Suicide is an adventurous audio production. The music is Nana by Tom Ireland. <laughs>